Hey everyone, welcome to Journey Pure Leaders and Change podcast. The reason for this podcast being created is to allow those that are leading the charge in improving care, outcomes, and growth in the world of substance abuse and mental health treatment. This episode is sponsored by Tiger Neuroscience. The benefits of neurofeedback, heart rate variability, and the healing of the autonomic nervous system has been documented with years of research with incredible outcomes. Today, you can harness the power of this healing from the comfort of your home. Easy to use, great results, and sustained health. Those are the benefits of the Tiger Neuroscience Method. Today, you can get $100 off per month on Tiger services by using the promo code attached to this podcast. The promo code 100OFF is for all the listeners of the podcast. Again, 100OFF, that's 100OFF with the off being not capitalized but undercase, visit the link on the podcast description or visit www.tigerneuro.com and enter in the promo code 100OFF in order to get the discount. On this episode, I will be interviewing Ward Blanchard, founder of the Blanchard Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina. Ward is well known in the industry as a thought leader on the national level, and the Blanchard Institute is known for its exceptional family workshops and family treatment care program. The Blanchard Institute is known throughout the nation as providing excellent intervention services as well. Look forward to everybody listening to Ward, how he got started, a little bit more about him personally, but also the services that Blanchard Institute offers. This guy is a wealth of information. I look forward to everybody enjoying this podcast. All right, everybody. With us today is Ward Blanchard uh, with the Blanchard Institute. He's a leader in uh, the recovery field. He's you know nationally known and recognized, and you know, I'm very happy and, and pleased to have him as one of our first guests. And you know, welcome to the podcast, Ward. Hey, Michael. Uh, you know, thank you for having me. It's exciting to you know connect with you virtually. Absolutely, man. It's, it's definitely exciting, and it's good to be able to see and have some interaction. I know it's kind of uh, been quarantine and all that stuff so you don't ever have to have that opportunity as much as we typically do you know you know one of the things i want to do is just ask and i try to ask this to everybody you know you know getting to understand their why uh, a lot of people already know who you are that are going to be listening to it to this but some people don't know ward blanche that are going to be uh listening to this and i want to give you that opportunity of you know given that why you dedicated yourself to this field and, and how you got started no, thank you, uh, you know, very much, Michael. I think in, um, in the human service field, uh, understanding, uh, you know, the why, the, the passion, the you know, sort of internal uh, inspiration that drives, uh, you know, the, those authentic professionals that, you know, come, come across with that, uh, you know, sort of altruistic uh, energy. It, it is, it's important to understand their why. You know, people... Um, you know, sometimes get focused on what they do and they forget why they do it. And I, you know, it, it really all started for me because, um, you know, it, it was, a, you know, a personal experience with, you know, myself and my, you know, family that we went through and um, where I you know, struggled with, you know, as a result of a, you know, healthcare condition that came up out of nowhere when I was 18 and introduced to the a number of, uh, you know, surgeries and pain medicine that, you know, spiraled out of control into, you know, pretty severe addiction. And, you know, my family in Eastern North Carolina had, 
uh, was fortunate enough to have all the resources in the world, but uh, couldn't find the appropriate help and couldn't find anybody in the healthcare system to give us sort of some direction and you know appropriate treatment uh, resources. There's even 17 years ago, even today, there's not much out there, and so you know we struggled for longer than we uh, probably would have in in today's world. There's a little more access to things, and and it wasn't until uh, you know I found some. Uh, you know, contacts that got me toward the appropriate resources and introduced me to sort of life of, you know, recovery that I felt, you know, drawn to, uh, to the, you know, the personal recovery, but also the process of, of helping families and, and clients with, you know, their own suffering and, and putting them in touch and, um, you know, dedicating, you know, sort of my, you know, life to, you know, relieving that, that suffering. It helped me uh, sort of understand why I experienced some of the, uh, the pain that I did, that I could use that to, you know, to help others and, and relieve others, uh, you know, from their own, you know, pain and suffering. And so, uh, you know, for the past, you know, better part of 15 years, you know, I've been in the human service field and, you know, started, you know, sweeping floors in treatment centers just to learn everything I could and go back to school to understand the, the science and the medicine and the, uh, uh, you know, all the uh, biological aspects of it. And, um, and just try to educate as much as my I can. I did and, and still do. And so, um, but it, I, I don't consider it a job or a career. It is much more of a, a passion and a calling for, for those of us that feel that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's great. And, you know, and, you know, hats off to you for, for your support. And, you know, because of that, you know, people out there are able to get better, you know, because yeah. of your drive. So, you know, thank you for that. Uh, you know, what, I know you mentioned family uh, when you're talking about that. So, so your program is heavily family focused. Uh, it has yes. a lot of different aspects to it, but one of the things you're really known for is, is really having, you know, world-class family focused care. So, so what kind of got you to that point and, and wanting to, you know, have a focus in on that? No, absolutely. I think that's a, uh, one of the most frequent questions that I'm, that I'm asked is, you know, because when talking about, uh, you know, addiction and substance use disorders and mental illness as sort of a, a family system disease and a family disease, that's a pretty, you know, common statement to hear in our industry. It's been you know, around for decades. It's not anything proprietary. And, uh, and still at the same time, I think our current industry, uh, you know, really doesn't understand what that means either. And uh, we still use vernacular, you know, from decades ago, like codependency and enabling, and we still label people the addict. And, and so whereas, you know, back in the late 70s and 80s, that may have been, you know, groundbreaking, you know, we've learned a little bit more since then in the past, you know, 40 years. And we ought to adjust our treatment as such with the modern information that we know. And we've done that to a degree with patients, uh, with our care for the identified patients, we have failed to pivot and do that for the family system. And so when I experience and I have crossover with treatment centers that talk about their typical family program and and their family resources and the, their robustness of them, and then I actually have interaction with them, it's actually fairly limited uh, you know, resources that are based in curriculum and information that came 40 years ago, 30 years ago, you know? And so uh, when we talk about it being a family disease, I think we need to really treat it with the reverence. And so what we try to do at uh, the Blanchard Institute is really 
try to back that up when we say our motto is family-focused treatment. Um, you know, we, we mean that. There's a, a curriculum that is based in, uh, you know, a lot of the modern day and current neuroscience that's coming out and some of the, uh, uh, you know, research is as early as just a few months ago when it comes down to human beings and chronic stress that they feel like family members and just human beings normally would feel if they had a loved one struggling with a chronic illness that can have uh, you know, mortal consequences, whether it's cancer or, uh, or substance use disorders, that individual struggling with a chronic illness creates a substantial amount of stress and chronic stress in their family system, which has tremendous impact on somebody's cognitive functioning. I mean, we know that, and yet we fail to apply it to our treatment of the family system. So, you know, based in sort of science and our understanding of what chronic stress does to any human being's brain, you know, we base our treatment in providing that support, providing that education, providing that consistency in the same way that we utilize our knowledge of neuroplasticity to help the identified patient, we use the same uh, you know, thought and themes in our family curriculum and have found it to be uh, tremendously successful and well-received, fortunately. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. And, and you know, a lot of what you've talked about you know, in, in, in the recent, and, and also you mentioned it, neuroscience. What kind of sparked that uh, you know, interest in that? And, you know, what, what kind of results have you seen when, when implementing it? Yes, no, it's, you know, I... I you know, what kind of you know, sparked that is really a study and a look back and sort of a, a reflection on what happened to me, where I was, you know, a young man that had uh, no experience, had never tried any sort of substances of abuse, drugs, alcohol, not even a cigarette, you know, when I, by the time I'd even gone through high school and college, and yet when I was introduced to, uh, you know, controlled substances and pain medicine and sort of opiates, it dramatically shifted my behavior and my, you know, internal systems and really who I was in a very dynamic and unhealthy way in a matter of just almost like the snap of a fingers. It, it really took hold of me. And so, you know, when I got into the recovery process and understood this to be a disease, I really wanted to under, understand the root causes of the disease, which lie in the brain. And so understanding of the uh, the medical concept of, of addiction and mental health as you know brain disorders, and when when I heard and got into the recovery process and I heard the words family disease, I wanted to understand that to a a deeper level. And whenever whenever and wherever I turned for that question, I was unable to get the resources. Nobody could tell me anything beyond well they're a codependent and they need to go to Al Anon and they need to read Melody Baby. And that's really still still our uh, industry line and theme as of today, which, uh, you know, much of what uh, those concepts are are very helpful. And it, I didn't find that comprehensive in helping families and educating families on the disease process that, they're, that they are experiencing. And so, you know, we are, and we often talk about the, uh, you know, you know, using substances and the unhealthy behaviors is just the symptoms of a problem. And so, you know, where families and patients can feel an incredible amount of shame and guilt, you know, because of that. Um, and so it's really about treating the human being and human being issues. And, uh, you know, it's not just people that struggle with, you know, addiction and their families. I mean, I feel like sometimes they, they label us that, 
with an A, with an A like a scarlet letter, like we're the only ones with a monopoly on spiritual bankruptcy. But if you look at our general society, our adult society is the most addicted, obese, medicated, in debt society ever. And all of those are very external medicators that are dopamine driven. And so I really wanted to understand what drives human behavior. And so human behavior is, is really driven by a, a uh, what I think is a you know simple system in your your brain and a network of system that operates and helps us keep survival. And so a lot of what you know, families and patients are doing is you know their brains as a result of the addiction or mental health, mental illness and just the brain imbalance and chemical imbalance. You know their brains are you know trying to keep them alive and those behaviors are unhealthy. Very similar, you know families as a result of the trauma they feel day in and day out. You know, their brains become imbalanced because of the chronic stress and anxiety that they feel. And I tell people the anecdote of, you know, in my, the darkest part and most severe part of my addiction, my mom called my house every morning at 630 in the morning. And I just thought she was being the overbearing mother that she still is. Um, but when I got in this recovery process, I just found out she was just calling to see if I was alive every day. And, and if you think about it, that was not a hyperbolic overreaction of her. What I was doing day in and day out, as severe as it was, she had valid reason to wonder if I was alive or dead every day. And what other scenario in life do families experience that can mirror that? Other than having a loved one possibly deployed to war, and I'm not com comparing war and addiction, but just what the families go through, where a family member has valid concern at the mortality level of anxiety of whether their loved one is alive or dead. And don't you think that dramatically impacts their behavior? You know, trauma doesn't have to be a lightning bolt. It can be death by a thousand cuts. It's still a death. And so families aren't codependent and, uh, and shouldn't be labeled with, you know, sort of shame-based language. They're, they're really trauma survivors. And, and struggle and, and with post-traumatic stress-like uh, symptoms. And oftentimes that is missed in our vernacular, in our education, in our standard family programs. It's, it's where we almost like indict them with uh, language that's outdated rather than, you know, empathize with them, you know, saying that, you know, you're a survivor, you're resilient for what, you know, you've been through. And this response is a result of a very natural human being issue where you just love and are connected you know, to your child or your spouse. And, and as a result of that trauma, this is the unhealthy you know, pattern that results. And uh, it's what we know about chronic stress. And, um, and so helping families understand that, uh, you know, educational therapy is key in the beginning for families to kind of you know, give them a little bit more awareness that they lose in the chaos of the disease. They lose their awareness as well. And so given appropriate educational uh, therapy, you know, consistency, um, you know, support and, and just to let them know that they're no longer going to go through this alone. I mean, it's one of the, uh, the biggest things and the barriers that families have is the healthcare isn't set up to make this easy for them. And every time they turn to many and much of the healthcare system, healthcare system throws it right back at their feet and say, you Google WebMD and you figure out how to treat your child's disease, which we would never do in any other medical scenario. And so we make them feel like they're alone. And so that's which only further cultivates that 
shame and disconnection. So, uh, you know, the most two most aspects of what we hope to provide in every family and client experience is one, a perspective shift in their approach by educational therapy. And these aren't bad people trying to get good, but just sick people that need well. And number two, the most important and intangible aspect that's required is empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, to let them know that they're they're not going to go through this alone. Mm-hmm. And that can just be summed up by two of the most powerful words. It's just, hey, me too. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to be alone going through this. And so we just like to be there to guide them through it. Absolutely. So, so baseline is, you know, not only does the person suffering some, from substance use, use disorder have a, a, a shift and rewiring of their brain once they uh, start using and they become you know, addicted to a substance, but as well, the family members, when witnessing everything come about, have a rewiring of their brain as well in order to react to the, the behaviors that the individual that's suffering from that. And then, in fact, they actually become ill with you know, certain thought processes and, and, and a, you, they, they need similar rewiring as, as far as treatment modality, pretty much. Oh, absolutely. We know as human beings that chronic stress, it teaches our brain to exist in a chronic threatening environment. Mm-hmm. And so, it, and we know that just chronic stress, just putting addiction and mental health on the shelf as human beings, chronic stress s- slows cognition, shuts off the, the frontal cortex and hyperactivates that limbic system. So it shuts off the frontal cortex, hyperactivates that reward system, which is exactly like what happens to the identified patient. That's why we often say they go through a parallel process, mm-hmm. but yet we fail to explain to the family why after we tell them that. Mm-hmm. And so helping them understand that what they go through is not a matter of them being crazy, quote unquote crazy, but it's a matter of biology. And it's uh, it's like we're, we all desire to be safe, secure, and connected. And as mammals, we have a mm-hmm. craving in our DNA to protect the, the, our social people, for protect them from pain. So what they're mm-hmm. experiencing is chronic stress that significantly impacts their mm-hmm. cognitive functioning. It slows it down. But also, more importantly, that we often see in the treatment industry is it affects them physically when you have that mm-hmm. uh, adrenaline and cortisol, which is what causes stress just constantly in your system, but supposed to leave in three minutes, but as it just in your system all the time with chronic stress, it starts to shut down your immune system. People start to not sleep, have high blood pressure, have bowel issues. You know, when families come in for the first time with their patients, I can't they both look like walking corpses. I can't tell who the identified patient is and who the family member is mm-hmm. because of what they're going through. So just validating what they are, what they're surviving through is, is key to just reaching and connecting with families again, who are just we're kind of walled off by their disease and by their shame that we make them feel. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sort of the whole entire thought process is once we get your, your loved one into treatment, they work on them. Meanwhile, you can just sit back and relax at home. Isn't kind of in line with, hey, we both had things to work on here. So I, I like that approach. And, and yeah, it, I agree 100% with, with your thought process there that, you know, I mean, really, it's the loved ones that are forgotten about. And also, I've heard statistics that said a lot of times caretakers pass away be, before the people that they actually take care of. And, and this is a perfect example, you know. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, in, and that's exactly 
a great point. It's because it's actually called caregiver stress. Mm-hmm. Now, these aren't necessarily quote-unquote codependency. What they're experiencing is something called the stress coping paradigm, and they go through caregiver stress that any family member that is in a relationship with a loved one that's struggling with any chronic illness, they experience. And, uh, and we know statistically that if you have a loved one struggling with a severe chronic illness, family members are five times more likely to be in the hospital than any other family that isn't going through that. And so we, there's all the evidence in the world. We know that this chronic stress substantially, substantially impacts families in emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally, socially, in just every aspect of their life. It really creates some destruction. Oh yeah, absolutely. I feel sometimes in my current life, but really in the past and, and, you know, one of the things I really like about, you know, Blanchard Institute is y'all incorporate things like biofeedback into your treatment. And, you know, you know, what are your thoughts on the healing of the autonomic nervous system as far as, you know, healing those that are suffering from, you know, the disease state and you know, what kind of results have you seen from it? No, well, thank you for, you know, just bringing that up and just, uh, you know, the more awareness that we can have to, you know, what I, evidence-based uh, uh, techniques and tools uh, to help mm-hmm. these individuals and families. But, you know, when you're, when you're talking about, you know, biofeedback and understanding of what that's based in, that's based in exactly what we've been talking about, you know, sort of neuroplasticity. And, uh, you know, these you know, patients, as a result of their, uh, you know, disorder, uh, you know, substance use disorders, you know, their brains experience massive uh, sort of rewiring where there's significant dysregulation in their reward system and their frontal cortex. And so there's a significant brain imbalance. And so, you know, a lot of uh, the standard treatment, like you would think of, like the groups and the educational lectures and exercise and yoga, those are, are based in um, and, you know, common things to hear about when, when talking about how to help, uh, you know, rewire a person's brain. But there's not much that is, uh, and not many professionals that are aware of the efficacy of biofeedback, which is you know, sort of a mechanism of, you know, operant conditioning that, uh, you know, uses sort of reward stimuli to sort of trigger neuroplasticity and, and sort of trigger the essence of, you know, the brain sort of rewiring itself and adapting and changing and using those sort of stimuli as a way for, uh, you know, these you know, patients and, and individuals going through this mechanism uh, to sort of retrain uh, their own, uh, you know, pathways and giving them a tool of coping and emotional regulation uh, and helping them understand that there's ways to cope and exist with uh, you know, this disorder. And, and these things can help you manage your emotions um, and give them that tool. And, it's, and all that is based in our understanding of how, uh, you know, the brain, the brain works and heals and, 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 you know, sort of rooted in that uh, acceptance of the miracles that can happen through, you know, properly utilized and understood uh, neuroplasticity. Do you believe, you know, eventually biofeedback is going to get wider, uh, you know, implementation industry-wide? Do you, do you see that as something that will be further implemented? Michael, I hope so. Um, and, uh, you know, we once, we once said that about telehealth. 
Mm-hmm. And now all of us are forced to use it now. So we're forced to comply. And, you know, similar to the virtual technology, I think this is going to catapult the industry into that change. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope there is a, a wake up call with our industry that uh, the statistics and outcomes are not good. I mean, before this horrible pandemic uh, created uh, through the, the coronavirus and you know, COVID-19, there was another pandemic still going on. And, uh, you know, that, you know, addiction, substance use disorders and mental, mental health that, uh, you know, were taking so many of our loved ones from us and hundreds, by the hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. And yet that didn't get our attention as an industry to really uh, start to have higher standards and the levels of care, higher expectations. And really when I tell my own staff, begin to treat this with the reverence of the mortality that the, that's in question with this disease. Mm-hmm. And so neuroplasticity, biofeedback um, are mechanisms and tools at our disposal that we know are evidence-based, that we know are tools that we can add to our rep- repertoire. And the more errors we have in the liver, the more successful that we can be because that there's no silver bullet that is uh, the answer for any one individual. And so we have to have a variety of options you know, to provide somebody. And, um, you know, I, I do know at the same time through, uh, you know, my own, own schooling, there is a famous, you know, research article in, in healthcare uh, that, that says when a, when a certain modality or particular treatment mm-hmm. goes through the trials and the clinical trials and is widely proven and accepted to be the overall best way to treat a certain disease, widely accepted and proven. Mm-hmm. From that point, it takes 17 years for 51% of the uh, provider population to begin to utilize it. And that is tragic. Mm-hmm. And I actually think the addiction and behavioral health section of healthcare is actually behind that. Mm-hmm. Actually, I mean, I just said that our, our family programs are using modalities from 30 years ago. Uh-huh. And so, you know, if you just want to put that in perspective, just imagine if, if this current pandemic envir- environment happened 17 years ago, what technology would we have to use? Mm. And yeah. would you want your loved one's mental health and life in the hands of somebody using technology from two decades ago? And yeah. so um, neuroplasticity, neurofeedback, biofeedback, you know, brain mapping, is an incredible tool that is in, uh, that is useful that we know in the proper hands and used intentionally and um, and used with consistency um, that it has uh, you know very good results uh, when added to uh, you know other items in a in a treatment plan and I really hope that you know more people are open to to change and open to the uh, the the tools that have been proven to work because we certainly need to do something differently because what we're doing uh, when less than 10% of people that need treatment actually access it and what we're doing as far as uh, providing an industry standard of evidence-based care um, it's not working right now and it hasn't been widely accepted as an industry and and we should be ashamed of that. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, that, that leads into my next question, you know, how do you believe clinical outcomes and the measurements will affect the future of treatment? You know, cause one thing I believe is like, we, we have to, as an industry, start having real outcomes, not just a hundred people, but 
you know, that go through a treatment center that sees thousands of folks. Let's, let's look at the whole entire data picture. How do you believe that's going to affect our care, you know, of, of helping these folks? You know, I, I think it's, um, as, as one of the hottest, you know, sort of conversations in our, our industry, I, I think um, without question, uh, understanding outcomes and, and having that data ought to be, needs to be an integral and, and substantially influential part of a treatment in our uh, industry moving forward. And at the same time, it uh, also needs to be viewed through the appropriate lens of uh, how are we going to measure those outcomes, which I don't think we figured that out yet. And we're trying, you know, it's not, uh, you know, measuring outcomes is not like other aspects of the health. Uh, I mean, measuring outcomes with behavioral health and uh, the addiction industry is a slight bit different than, uh, you know, measuring out outcomes in most of the healthcare system where you can either pull out a pathogen or you mm-hmm. can look at an x-ray and you can see some objective measurables and that kind of gives you an easier pathway to uh, an easier trial of coming to, to outcomes. Now with behavioral health, um, you know, that those measurables are more uh, subjective and um, it can't be viewed in through the lens of success or failure based on abstinence. And uh, that's hard for our many traditionalists in our industry uh, to accept is they have a lot of people in our industry have their mindset made up of what recovery is. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that can be a very punishing, uh, uh, you know, stereotype of uh, you either are perfectly abstinent the rest of your life or you're not in a failure. And mm-hmm. I don't measure outcomes like that. You know, it's measured in quality of life and wellness and is, are things getting healthier? Are things getting more functional? And what is the lens that we're measuring that by? Um, is something that we all need to come together and collectively decide because it's, it's much more of a, a comprehensive uh, collection and observation and data. And it's essential for us to do uh, so we can begin to really start to regulate and require best practices, industry standard, mm-hmm. uh, keep our industry accountable to the highest of standards mm-hmm. to make our industry meet the disease with the reverence and severity of the mortality that it carries. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's going to require us to get better and more focused uh, with how we measure and apply outcomes. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, you know, straight up it's, it's by far, I believe in, in my outlook, something that's going to be of immense importance, not only to, you know, the, the payers and insurance companies, which I, I think, you know, for more of an objective study, they should start looking at it themselves, you know, to kind of ensure that, you know, we, we do get the top line care and, and take a look at what programs are doing that. But also, you know, we're, we're able to have other measurables, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to see that people are staying healthy. You know, uh, if we look at just one statistic and say, well, that person stayed sober or, or clean and that's it, you know, that's the zero sum all, albeit to me, that is, you know, a, a, probably the, the biggest importance for all the other uh, sort of sideline effects, which is, you know, better relationships, better you know, outcomes as far as, you know, 
job performance, maintaining job performance, not going to a hospital, you know, being able to stay healthy. So, so we're trying to get people healthy, but then also allow them to stay healthy. But we have to take a look at the full picture because it's not so black and white. There is things in the middle and we need to just be able to say, hey, that's great. Don't shame yourself too much. We can help you get back to where you were or, or help you get back in line with it. So, so yeah, because it, it is one of those things that people lapse, right? And, and you know, they, they didn't use the time that they had before. You know, you know I, I can't agree with you more. I mean, it's, you know, we, these same traditionalists that can often hold on to this black or white thinking will often, will also often say this is a disease that is like diabetes. Mm-hmm. And yet, it, you know, statistically, it has the same reoccurrence levels of diet, people who struggle with diabetes. Mm-hmm. But yet, when, when somebody, a diabetic experiences a reoccurrence, we call, don't call him a failure. Mm-hmm. Yet, in this field, when, we have somebody that has a reoccurrence and that's what we call it at the Blanchard Institute, sort of a reoccurrence to their mm-hmm. diseases. Um, we don't, we, we call them a failure and make them feel like it. And it's mm-hmm. you know, just the other day I was uh, helping a, a family, that perspective shift that we were trying to help them with is because they had an, uh, a family member that was in our, our treatment spectrum and had been in there four months and had recently you know, had a, a reoccurrence over the weekend and, and they came in like it was a failure. I was like, guys, in the past five, four and a half months, he's had, you know, four and a half months minus two days of mm-hmm. abstinence. Look how he's progressed in this healthy function of life. Mm-hmm. It's like he's had more quote unquote traditional sobriety than most people in this room I'm, I'm talking to. And mm-hmm. I say, how much more functional is his life and healthier is your family than six months ago. And that's how we look at, at progress. That's how we look at, at success. It's not linear. And, um, and it gives them that perspective of when they look back, it's like, geez, things are a whole lot better off and stable. Although not perfect. Uh, the whole lot healthier in our, you know, uh, you know, progress journey than, than they were six months ago, six months ago. So, no, this is not a failure. We're still very successful, very you know, resilient and on you know, the healthy path. I mean, I, I can't stand what I hear professionals say relapse is a part of recovery. It doesn't have to be, and it's not necessarily. And it is often part of the change process. And so as professionals, how do we guide them? and support them in their understanding of that relapse recurrence mm-hmm. as a, a opportunity for continued success. Exactly. Are they progressing in the right direction or complete regression? You know, yeah. if you can keep with them while they're still progressing, even with a little slip, you know, you can still promote them saying, Hey, this isn't in the world yet. You know, yeah. you don't have to, you know, go down this path. Let's, you still had all this progress. You could keep on progressing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I know. absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's often important to reflect uh, to the uh, uh, identified patient when they've experienced that reoccurrence. Look what you've accomplished. And does this eliminate that? Does it take it away from your experience? Does it take it away from, uh, from your self-esteem, what you've been able to accomplish the past four and a half months? And so that doesn't go away. And, uh, and this is an opportunity. This is really an opportunity. We, every human being experiences trials. Every human being, being experiences pain. How we show up 
what we do with that pain really is our choice. It's, it's our perspective. Are we going to lean into that discomfort, sort of embrace that suck and, uh-huh. and head straight into it and take ownership? That which leads to you know resiliency, or are we going to blame others? Are we going to be the victim? Are we going to look all the things that weren't done for us and externalize it, mm-hmm. and which is an unhealthy direction? We have that choice, and so how we show up to it um, is often, especially in the early recovery process, can often be influenced by the professionals that are helping guide them, and hopefully more professionals are approaching that via a positive lens and positive psychology, and using it as an opportunity. Uh, to really catapult them forward rather than beat them with a stick as a failure and shame them backwards. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, just, you know, overall, where do you see the field in the next, you know, 12 months, five years and beyond, you know, kind of, kind of where do you see it going in the future? And uh, I, I, I like getting people like your perspective because you are a thought leader in, in this field truly. And, and you have, you know, definitely, proven thus far that you stay on top of a lot of these things. You know, what, where do you see it the next year, five years and beyond? You know? That's a, that's a great, great question, Michael. And if you'd asked me two months ago, I would have given you a completely different answer than where we are right now. You know, um, I think it's, uh, <clears throat> I think it's hard to ignore the, uh, the new normal that we're in now. Um, when, and how that applies to our treatment field. Um, when it comes to sort of, uh, you know, treating this, the, uh, the particular pandemic of substance use disorders and mental illness that was ravaging sort of our country, um, you know, one of the, the biggest barriers was access to resources that still in our modern society, there are plenty of uh, geographic areas and communities that struggle with access to appropriate resources. I mean, even to this day in Dare County, Eastern North Carolina, there's not a full-time psychiatrist in the whole county. And so access to resources is a barrier uh, for people seeking help. And so where our industry has been resistant to embrace and integrate, you know, virtual resources, you know, what this uh, coronavirus and COVID pandemic has forced us to comply and forced us to obey and uh, with virtual resources and familiarize ourselves with it. And so I think, um, which, you know, Michael, in the, in the business world, this environment is not unprecedented. Uh, you know, something outside of our control that forces dramatic change. Yes. Is this, uh, you know, COVID-19 pandemic, is it more sudden? Yes. Is it more alarming? Yes. And the change that it's created is not unprecedented. We experienced this with the invention of the internet, that there are some companies and industries that could adapt to that and some that couldn't. Like, uh, you know, think about Blockbuster. As big and as, there's no more Blockbuster because they couldn't adapt and change to the streaming world. You see Netflix everywhere. Take a look at, because Blockbuster tried to hold on to their old model of doing things, like how do we do what we do in this new world, which was a mistake. And they failed to embrace and adapt to the internet and streaming. Uh-huh. Similar to that is the taxi industry. You know, they're trying to figure out how to make their old model. How do you hold on to that in this new world? Well, they haven't figured out the things that Uber does. And that's why you see Uber and, you know, Blockbuster. Um, and so with our industry, uh, you know, it is not how do we hold on 
to what we've been doing. It's how will we do what we do in this new world? And how do we uh, utilize this uh, you know, new platform in a, a healthier way to, to benefit and propel our particular company's mission forward? And I can tell you that uh, you know, one of the things that you know, we're trying to do to, uh, in today's current environment where uh, you know, virtual you know, treatment is the standard of care, at least in the short term, is accessing uh, uh, treatment to those individuals out in Eastern North Carolina that we can now provide as a result of this mm-hmm. environment. That's just a microcosm example of, of how I think the industry is going to change. I think it is absolutely going to uh, adapt and uh, companies are and the smarter forward thinking companies are going to adapt to change um, to how to integrate this virtual platform into delivering their their particular services. And I hope that uh, exposure and gain in people allows people to be much more accepting into the modern day progressive treatments. I hope it allows people to integrate uh, the uh, you know biofeedback mechanisms and see how traditional ways of thinking you know, don't work in today's modern world. And that's actually one of the titles of one of the lectures I give to families or you know, the, uh, the, um, a family's reality in the 21st century because you know, the, the substance use disorder presentation of clients today are a whole lot different than they were 30 years ago. I mean, as unhealthy as it was 30 years ago, you know, kids aren't getting strawberry booms farm and getting drunk before high school, which is you know, unhealthy in its own right. You know, they're access to fentanyl and access to research drugs so it, mm-hmm. and high-potency marijuana. It has much more uh, profound impact on their brains and so that the disease is different than it was 30 years ago. And so we can't use those treatment mechanisms. We've got to adapt. I think we've learned that uh, that residential centers are essential and establishing that foundation and providing a uh, a core of neuroplasticity, of safety, of stabilization. And we've learned the importance of long-term aftercare, long-term resources. I think uh, what's going to happen is... Uh, the healthcare systems, uh, you know, sort of adaptation to uh, promoting and supporting longer-term resources. I think, although we're scratching the surface, and surface, there's a lot more we have to learn about it. But the idea of long-term recovery coaching and long-term um, support and community support, uh, community-based support, um, is going to be a significant factor. I think um, learning how to use applications and uh, sort of mobility in our, our treatment in a healthy way um, is going to be a factor. Right? And, uh, you know, another often thing that you hear a lot about now is we will see much more uh, acuity around the impacts of technology addiction. And I say that in the same phrase as uh, uh, promoting an industry to figure out how to integrate virtual and digital platforms, but that's done through the hands of a healthy professional Mm-hmm. knowing how to intentionally use them and uh but it's, it's hard to ignore the impact that we see in, in today's younger generation the impact that technology has on their cognitive development and so all of these factors mm-hmm. that we're going to see uh are going to be significant influencers um when we look at the future and there will be more treatment centers that are not bricks and mortar mm-hmm. um in our very near future where i once thought it was you know, five to seven years away as a result of today's crisis, it's more like 
it's going to happen today and this year, next year. Mm -hmm. um, but most importantly, uh, Michael, the one change that I think has to happen, needs to happen, is within ourselves as an industry. Um, sadly, um, too many uh, within our industry um, are, uh, view each other as competition. Mm -hmm. And that has always been tragic uh, to me. Um, that, you know, in, in today's you know, current world where you have tens of millions of people that struggle with mm -hmm. substance use disorders or substance misuse, um, tens of millions, uh, and a healthcare system that grossly misunderstands it, mm -hmm. uh, grossly misunderstands it, uh, and uh, that the addiction industry views each other as our own enemy is tragic. That with only less than 10% getting help, if you want to fight over that 10%, have at it. Mm -hmm. And if, if you want to work together, collaborate, you know, bring the awareness to this issue, bring the platform and help us get to the other 90%, that's going to take the collective collaboration of community resources. Mm -hmm. And we, we fail at that. And um, that's on nobody else but us. And hopefully uh, there's enough of us that can model, not point fingers, but just model our own uh, behavior, our own willingness to, uh, to be open to collaborate, um, of which you know, Journey Pure has been tremendous collaborators and very transparent uh, relationship. And... Um, you know, hopefully more, uh, you know, relationships that uh, can develop like this and can witness some of the things that, you know, Journey Pure does and and how it helps to support each other and um, how that's how we get, you know, to the next mission. And what I tell people, Spartans were famous for their shields, not their swords. And that's how they were so successful because they protected, you know, the man on the left and the man on the right. And that's how they became legendary in uh, sustainable is and I think our industry needs to say is uh, work together promote each other and and if there's some concern uh, about another's you know behavior come to that with the same way that you would want to come to them to come to you with concern is hey I, I see this and I just want to you know, kind of have that crucial conversation from an emotionally connected place rather than pointing your finger and shaming at them so I, I think Collaboration doesn't mean there's not healthy accountability within our industry. Mm -hmm. um, and if we are ever going to make an impact on uh, the pandemic that will be long uh, still here after the coronavirus, if we're ever going to have an impact on helping our society, uh, then as an industry in behavioral health, we've got to learn to collaborate and work together and be a team, you know, uh, using our shields to protect each other um, if we're going to really, you know, create and be the change agent. Yeah, and I, I, I see that by also, you know, innovation is what you talked about too. So working together, collaboration, but also on the earlier part, innovation. Like how are we seeking to improve things? Because what you have around us is we have these smartphones. We have, you know, flat screen TVs. We have iPads, we have all this brand new technology at our fingertips as a society, but we're supposed to utilize just the same tools that we've had 40 years ago and say, hey, that's it. That's all you ever need. That, that, that means that that same individual, I wonder if you walk into their house, do they still have a, a phone? 
a plug in the wall phone? Do they still have one of those big box TVs? Uh, do they not use a cell phone? If they do use a cell phone, is it a smartphone? And what you would typically see is that individual that might be saying that, no, they've taken on the innovative technologies that society has. Yes. But my, my thought process has always been, why not try the new things that have proven to be successful, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and if we're able to do that and we're able to confront this disease with those tools, that will give us the outcomes. That will give us the legitimacy for everybody to look at us as an equal partner within the healthcare space. Because one of the things I've noticed, too, is, is you know, sometimes because of the stigma, we're not always looked at as a, a, another part of the healthcare space. They always look at us like a separate entity sometimes, yeah. even though we're still in healthcare. We're prescribing medications. We're helping people get healed you know, from, from a, a deadly disease state, you know, and that's, that's what we do. And it's been proved to be one of the ones that is killing a lot of us, you know, and. No, I, I, I no, I'm, I, you're preaching. I mean, I could not agree with you more on the, uh, the accuracy of what you're saying. And a lot of like what we tell clients, Michael, is like the healthcare system is not treating us properly or a part of the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Well, We've got to act as such, respect ourselves, model that behavior before we can expect others to respect us. And so when you tell somebody, right, is they, they, they treat you that way and you allow it. Mm -hmm. And you, it's hard to set boundaries and demand respect if, if you don't have the internal security, the internal respect, and the internal value mm -hmm. and, and be connected internally. And I think there's still the significant disconnection with our industry. I think it's getting better. It certainly is better than it was a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but we have to internally believe in the collaboration and the efficacy of what we're doing. And I kind of, although it's frustrating, I kind of understand the healthcare's uh, stereotypical disrespect of us. There's not established, required industry standards of care. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't respect the, uh, a platform of healthcare like that. And so we have got to call to action and create that and hold each other accountable. And that can only be done collectively. And, uh, and, uh, and my point, I hope today's environment catapults what you were saying earlier about there's iPads and technology and, and, uh, and access that, uh, that people are now experiencing on new levels and new platforms. Nothing will ever may take the place of one-on-one on one connection. Nothing will ever take the place of that. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean it has to be, you know, good doesn't, uh, you know, perfect doesn't need to be the enemy of good. And, uh, and so you, how can we utilize this virtual world and the fact that 98% of people walking the globe have access to a screen and to, to get our mission, to get our resources, to get the help out there, out there more. And, um, and I hope, in this environment that we're in now, uh, you know, is, is showing people that yes, there is some limitations to being isolated and quarantined and uh, they, it goes against our natural instincts, which as human beings would be to safe, secure and connected, but doing stuff virtually over the, over the internet, you can have meaningful connection. You know, you can have uh, altruistic experiences that are more than a phone, that are more than an email or a text. And I hope we utilize that and figure out how to 
integrate that into making our uh, you know, system more effective and more resourceful and provide more resources to the families and clients in need. That's it. And, and, you know, I appreciate your time. Uh, you know, uh, you've answered a lot of my questions. I feel like I could talk to you for a very long time because there's a lot of stuff I could still ask, but, uh, you know, out of respect for your time, I, I want to ask one last thing, you know, something funny. And, and yeah. one thing I've been doing, you know, since this has all started, you know, I'd say that I don't do typically is I'm taking at least two to three showers a day right now. <laughs> and I don't know why. I am. I think it's just because I'm home all the time and I have like a structured behavior. Uh, that and and I, I, I'm definitely running. I'm noticing other people in my neighborhood out and about on the back greenways and so forth. You know, what what are some interesting things and fun things you're doing right now? Uh, no, that's well. It certainly has has been uh, an opportunity of growth. Uh, whereas the first few days and initial experience with this. Uh, you know, quarantine, it would have been a good day if I'd have taken a shower once or twice a week. And it, it would have been a 50-50 chance whether I'd even had pants on in this interview. Uh, you know, I learned that has you know, sort of gotten me gotten me out of a, a routine and just uh, I didn't feel as, as good about myself. And easily the isolation could lead down a you know, sort of spiral of, of just disconnection. And um, where I, you know, I just kind of told you earlier offline, I'm, I'm somebody that it does crave and need, you know, connection. Like I said, so I'm, I'm a peacock. You know, they got to let me fly. I don't, I don't meant to be caged up. Mm-hmm. And so I've really had to be intentional about sort of a routine in regards to getting up and, and figuring out a way of, of meaningful connection with, you know, the family members that I have in the house and whether we do puzzles and we, and we don't watch much news. We stay informed and, but we don't watch much news anymore. We get outside and we walk the dog. And the other day I, I uh, made one late night incredible Amazon purchase of a 14 foot blow up movie screen where we put outside and watched the movie outside. Just to, that was our version of going to the movies. And so, yes, there's limitations that not, are not ideal, but we can create meaningful connection. We there is an opportunity here. Whereas before this happened, our society was uh, just controlled and prisoners to our own exhaustion where we used exhaustion as a status symbol and never used the, our time to have meaningful connection because we're always too busy that this slows us down this uh forces us uh to have that intimacy that intimacy you see uh conversations and intentional time and sort of remove some of this distraction and so it's really an opportunity to kind of get back to our roots. And some of my friends are practicing origami. And uh, I'm uh, on my third puzzle now. And, um, and so it's, uh, it's sort of a, a, a neat opportunity. I was telling a young, uh, young man the other day on the phone, this is what sort of growing up in the late like 70s, early 80s, like we didn't have Nintendos and stuff. We went outside and played in played in the mud and played with sticks and built forts and played frisbee. And, um, and that's what, you know, being young and being a human being is about. And we all have a kid inside us, no matter how old we are. So I hope people are getting back to, to having, uh, you know, that type of fun. Absolutely. Well, Ward, I appreciate your time today and it's been great to have this conversation and, uh, uh we much appreciate your, your efforts to collaborate with us and, and be a part of this podcast. So thank you so very much. No, thank you, Michael. It's always always a, a great, and we're always grateful opportunity to to work with uh, 
an organization like Journey Pure. And so thank you again for this. All right. Thanks.